From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I'm still in St Helena, little volcanic outcrop in the middle of the South Atlantic, one of the most isolated communities of human beings on planet Earth. So uh, lots of uh, lots of history hit content being produced here. Just you wait. It's going to be awesome. It's not just Napoleon Bonaparte, all sorts of other stuff as well. Did you know that on this island there is the most important archaeological record of the middle passage of the transatlantic slave trade anywhere in the world? Yep, watch this space. Lots coming out here soon. Um, this podcast however, has nothing whatsoever to do with St Helena. It has everything to do with Roman Britain or un-Roman Britain. Just how far did Roman ideas, language, culture, religion, politics, demographics penetrate into Britain during the Roman occupation of Britannia from the 1st to the 5th centuries AD? In this podcast, I talked to Miles Russell, who doesn't think it did penetrate very far, and he's got lots of fantastic archaeological evidence to support the idea that Roman rule was just a bit of a veneer, or certainly confined to isolated spots around our island. You can check out lots of Roman history on historyhit.tv. It's my new digital history channel. You can go over there, you can use the code POD6, P-O-D-6. You can watch my documentary on St. Helena. You can watch various documentaries on there. You can check it all out. But uh, if you go over there, History Hit TV, use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you get six weeks for free. Uh, make up your mind. If you like it, then go on and become a subscriber. It'd be great to have you on there. Uh, lots coming up in 2020. In the meantime, everyone, here's Miles Russell. Enjoy. Miles, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. That's quite all right. I'm so interested by this, uh, by, by your work, because I often wonder whether we should think, we, we think about ancient empires in the way that we think about the sort of, the you know, the 19th, 20th century empires, big blocks of pink on a map, and it looks contiguous, but oh, it's almost like we're talking about a Roman empire made up of nodes of Romanitas with, with, a, with a sort of hinterland that actually is, is, is almost untroubled by Roman rule. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, we, it's very easy to think that the Roman Empire is one sort of uh, homogenous, uniform block, and it's the same type of civilization right the way across the empire. And it, it's not sort of uh, local ethnic identities remain intact. But as you go further to the peripheries, and certainly Britain, right on the margins of empire, you've got large areas where the old Iron Age British tribal identities survive. And we can see that in burials, you can see that in uh, religion, you can see that in, in housing styles. Um, and it's really, I, I guess, Rome's very good at defeating people militarily. Um, but the question is, as you get out into the fringes, is it great at winning the hearts and minds of the population to want to make them become Roman? But in a way, like, does, does Rome care about that? You know, it's like until nationalism gets invented and mass mobilisation of whole societies, it's presumably, if you're a Roman leader, as, as long as 
you know, Alpine valleys are sort of quiet. You don't maybe you don't really care about what goes out there. And the same is true of Britain. You know, on the borders of Wales and local tribal rulers or elders kind of hold sway as long as they don't kick off and they they pay you a bit of tribute. Does does it really matter? I, I think that's exactly right. In the in the sense that I mean, Britain's one of the most heavily garrisoned of territories within within the Roman Empire, uh, and certainly around Hadrian's Wall and the northern part of, of Britain, you, you've got a, a dense concentration of soldiers there. But it, Britain is, is making money, it's contributing to the finances of empire, especially with regard to agricultural production. Uh, you've got the lead and tin mines in Western Britain, you've got the gold mines and copper mines in Wales. So it, it's generating a lot of what the empire, you know, the, the Roman Empire is a resource hungry state and it needs these sort of raw materials and Britain has got that and I think as long as as Rome is able to utilize that and, and to make money then ultimately as long as th- things are peaceful they don't really mind I mean in one or two instances this, this causes a problem because obviously in, in AD 60 you've got Queen Boudicca uh, of the Acheni rising up against Rome uh, essentially her tribe had been given money just to keep quiet, um, but it, they don't seem to have been won over to the Roman cause. So at several points, there are difficulties that, that Rome experiences in Britain, but by and large, it tries to delegate authority to the British tribes because it, it, it doesn't really want to heavily garrison the, the, the southern part of Britain where, where you know, you've got lots of agricultural production. But as long as it's making money, as long as it isn't an overall drain on resources, then I think they are relatively happy to let the Britons do what they've always done and not to interfere too much. Is that why we get the sort of idea of a colony, meaning uh, not not what it's come to mean in early modern and modern British history, world history, which is a sort of a, a big geographical region, if you like, a colony like you know the, the Virginia. But but a colony like a, a town like like Colchester, Camulodunum is is it, there are there are little nodes are there of where the Romans do sort of build little versions of Rome. Yes, yes. I mean, Colchester is a very good example because Colchester is one of the first towns to be established in Britain, and as a colony, essentially, it is uh, for retired soldiers. It, it serves one of two purposes. It, it's a way of getting rid of soldiers who've done their 25 years service because Rome obviously has got the first professional army in the ancient world. So after their 25 years service, they can be retired into this new town and be given land and property and so on. So it gets rid of that issue. But also Colchester could serve as a, as a model town, uh, sort of like a, a Milton Keynes in the Roman Britain. You know, it's showing you this is how a town should work. This is the benefits of a civilised way of life. Now, Colchester doesn't succeed too well because you've got the problem that the Britons aren't that enamoured by the place. You know, you've got people who up until fairly recently were killing or enslaving them or or lording over them and now living in the town and doing pretty much the same sort of thing. So during the Boudican uprising um, of AD 60, Colchester becomes the, the main target of hatred and is burnt down. But the idea persists, and after Rome has quelled that rebellion, it, it, it creates towns. It basically creates the infrastructure of towns. So you know, you've got the roads, you've got a forum, uh, the the economic centre, you've got a basilica, the administrative heart, and then you can build up bathhouses and amphitheatres and key elements of a Roman way of life. But to be honest, once Rome has established these towns, these these, these tribal centres across Britain, it then moves away and. It's a case of, of relying on the local elite to to 
convey a sense of Romanness, to oversee Roman laws and to keep things running. But I think, as we said earlier, as long as their tax is being paid and money is being made, then, then Rome really isn't that too bothered. And when you look at some of these towns implanted into Britain after the first sort of 60, 70, 80 years, they're not hugely successful. You can see that animals are being corralled inside the towns. There are pottery kilns, there are metalworking. They look a little bit more, I suppose, like you'd expect a, a shanty town, a, a wild west town in, in, in the US, you know, in the 19th century. They don't look like Mediterranean style towns. And I think the problem is we've tended to look at these uh, urban centres in Britain and equate them with Pompeii and Herculaneum and all these other great Roman cities and think they were exactly the same. And once you get below the skin, once you get into the, the archaeology, you'll see actually they're not like that at all. They're set up to be great functioning urban centres, but the reality is on the ground they weren't. And I think that's really a fault of the Roman state not winning over the, the hearts and minds, but also the Britons being a little bit cooler towards the idea of wanting to be Roman. How interesting. And what does population density look like in southern Britain in, in this period? Are people, uh, nowadays we think of, you know, most of us live in towns and cities. Uh, would, it, would it have been far more even, of course, far fewer people, but spread across, you know, in subsistence agriculture? I mean, would it, or, and therefore these towns wouldn't have been as important in the economy as Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, London are now. Yeah, again, today, I think we, we are, we get so focused on, on towns. And certainly in the, in the Roman mindset, the town was the centre of, of civilization. But when you look at the, the population spread, as far as we can understand it, in the late Iron Age, at the time that Rome arrives in the first century AD, you've got a very scattered and diverse population. Uh, you've got one or two key centres um, in, in the south and east. You've got uh, relatively dense population centres at key places like Chichester in Sussex and Colchester in Essex, where trade is being enacted between Britain and the Mediterranean world. But once you move away from that, you've got small farmsteads, you've got clan groups, you've got probably two or three families in a, little clusters of roundhouses farming their landscape. It, it's a quite a politically fractured landscape and in one hand it makes it relatively easy to conquer because you know when when the roman armies arrive you've got thousands of these sort of heavily armed uh, well-trained soldiers but they've got no one really to come up against because you haven't got the political organization there to bring large field armies to fight against rome it, the britons are very good at guerrilla warfare and attacking the roman army while it's on the march but they're they're absolutely hopeless when it comes to pitched battles so it's very easy to, to defeat them but then it's very difficult to try and bring them into this mediterranean idea of towns because whereas when rome conquered in in egypt and across the aegean in greece there you've got civilizations that are similar to rome they understand the importance of towns they've got well organized uh, well sort of um, structured society in britain the, the it's very dispersed tribalized society and i don't think they're ever fully won over to this idea of what a town should be and they don't fill it with the same kind of uh, functions and resources that we'd, we'd see uh, a roman town say in north africa or in greece and so the archaeology that, that this is fascinating what because we assume don't we that sorry stupid people like me assume that <laughs> there were all these sort of Brits that just eventually started living in towns and going to the bars and things. So, so these towns were, were, were not a success. They were, we should think of them as 
the sort of model towns that perhaps the Soviets would build in strange parts of the Soviet Union that, that were just never uh, pro- properly kind of you know moved into as the builders had intended. I, I think yes, yeah. I mean, you, you can compare them with that. I think I think the the trouble is we get blinded by the, the sort of the archaeological skeleton of, of these places. You know, you see the road layout which was set out by um, the the Roman government in the earliest stages. And what happens with a lot of towns, say like, um, for example, Dorchester or Sirencester, is you see in the last few decades uh, of the Roman Empire in, in the fourth century AD, suddenly there's a, a big explosion of townhouses. You get massive mosaics and big elite structures being built. Now, that's because I think a lot of wealthy people are moving into the town. They're perhaps they're moving into um, an, an undeveloped part of the Roman Empire. So these might be wealthy business successes from other parts of the Roman world moving into Britain, but they are developing their own private estates within these towns. So it, the, the towns are becoming more sort of like, um, almost like a sort of a, a, a sort of an elite ghetto. You know, this is where you've got uh, a closed estate where the wealthy are building their luxury apartments, but they're excluding the rest of society. So we see this archaeologically. I mean, you, you dig in Sirencester or Dorchester and you see mosaics and you're, it's very easy to think, well, this is fantastic. The Britons are all living like Romans, but they're not. It's just a very small minority of extremely wealthy people who at the very end of Roman Britain are moving into the not very successful towns and developing it for their own ends. So it, it's a bit like when, you know, when we focus on that side, the wealthy side, and we look at the villas, it's a bit like trying to understand, say, 18th or 19th century England by just looking at stately homes and not looking at the rest of society to, to get a, a better picture. I mean, the Roman archaeology is fantastic. It, it does look amazing and, and it is you know, incredible to see, but it only represents sort of less than 1% of the population within the province at that time. So when we look at, um, say, the West Country, so Exeter and its and its hinterland, and then up to Chester and its hinterland in the northwest, you think there would have been a sort of pinprick of ro- Romanitas, and then would would the people outside the walls of those towns or outside those towns would would they be living uh, almost untrue? Would they be living beyond the the Roman state? Would they be taxed? Would they be doing military service? What, what would their relationship with Rome be like? It's certainly very difficult. They they would certainly be taxed. Um, they would be contributing to the Roman program. But it's interesting, the further you get from the towns, the less Roman it, it becomes. You see, like a lot of the excavations that we're doing now uh, in, in Dorset, you can see as you move away from the key Roman towns, you suddenly start discovering longhouses and roundhouses. The, the sort of structures that are being built in the pre-Roman Iron Age are still continuing 100, 200, 300 years after the invasion. And there are, grad- there are a few sort of Roman coins on this site. We get some Roman pottery. But it's almost as if people are carrying on the, the, the same sort of existence and they're not really buying into a Roman market. They, they, they've got the odd sort of knickknacks. They've got these things that are helping facilitate or better their lifestyle, but they're not becoming Roman. They're not restructuring their houses in a more Mediterranean way. They're, they're not going over completely to this new style of fashion. Now, whether that's either deliberate resistance to these ideas or whether it's more passive in that they don't see any benefit about being Roman. They don't see any sort of financial incentive to become Roman, but they're just carrying on their, their own sort of lifestyle. So often when we see forts uh, up on Hadrian's Wall in the militarised zone, or we see towns like Chester, Exeter, they're like little sort of bubbles of Roman lifestyle. 
And once you start moving 10, 20 miles away from these, you're moving into a more rural landscape within which native culture patterns survive. And it's only really towards the end of Roman Britain that we get the villas being almost injected or built or developing into this landscape. But as I said, you know, that, that seems to be more to do with a wealthy elite, possibly from another part of the empire, rather than the Britons themselves. You know, when we look at villas, it is very tempting to say this must be the native Britons who've wholeheartedly embraced Roman culture. But it doesn't look as if that's the case. You know, they're, they're developing 300 years after the invasion. So the success of a Roman lifestyle in uh, distant Britain is actually very limited. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, you say whether it's passive or whether it's sort of actively anti-Roman. I mean, there was... Britain was one of the most heavily garrisoned provinces of the Roman Empire. That's partly because of the strategic threat from the north of the island and, and I guess the Irish. Is it, is it those external threats or is there a sense in which Boudicca in 60 AD and then one or two other risings, that, that they were, they were this was a troublesome province to police? It, it was always a troublesome province, yes. And, and towards the end of the empire in the 3rd and 4th centuries, it becomes extremely rebellious. And, and turns its military strength against Rome as, as people are trying to break away from the empire. But I think the difficulty really with Britain is that that Rome wanted the metal reserves that it got, it got from Wales and from Devon and Cornwall. Uh, it wanted the agricultural production and the taxation from southern and eastern Britain. It didn't really have much to gain from northern England and up into Scotland because there you've got very sort of pastoral landscapes, not that much intensive agriculture going on, a very dispersed settlement pattern. And it's very difficult to garrison that. I mean, Rome, certainly in the first century when Britain was invaded, didn't really conceive the idea of, of frontiers. It was always about, almost with, with missionary zeal, spreading their word, spreading their culture across Europe. And occasionally they came up across natural boundaries like the Sahara Desert or political ones when they come up against the Persians in the east. But in Britain, there's only a small part of the island that really they were that bothered with, that they, they thought they could exploit financially uh, and, and politically. And so if you're ignoring northern Britain, you need a substantial garrison there just to keep them away from your investments in the south. 
So, so you're right. There, there's about three legions throughout the history of, of Britain, uh, which is about a tenth of the whole military garrison strength of, of the empire is invested in Britain to keep that northern frontier secure and then later to protect the harbours on the western part of Britain against uh, sort of tribes from Ireland who, who weren't conquered and then later from the first sort of uh, English pirates coming over the Angle, Angles and Saxons during the great sort of migrations. But it, it's a very tricky province to really control and towards the end it becomes too expensive and it becomes so politically troublesome because there are basically if you're in charge of a, a significant military garrison in Britain, you're feeling cut off and separated and divorced from the rest of the empire. I think the it's very tempting to build up your own empire because you can protect yourself. You can protect your harbours. You can create your own sort of state away from Rome. Rome seems too distant uh, if your taxes are you know are going off in, in that general direction. In the third and fourth centuries, it seems better for a lot of politicians in Britain to break away from the rest of the empire and do their own thing. So I think the danger there for Rome is there's just so many soldiers stuck in Britain. And if they haven't got anything particularly to do, then they become a source of rebellion. So it's all getting a bit Brexity now. It's all getting a bit contemporary <laughs> here. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that's that, that's the danger. I mean, it's, 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 I think, I mean, it might be something to do with with the sort of the political sort of ideology in in Britain, the sense of an, an island nation. They, they, their leaders sometimes feel, you know, why are we interested with people overseas unless you're controlling your own empire? And yeah, un unfortunately, there are certain parallels you can see with the way in which. British leaders tried to break with Rome in the same way that they have been doing recently. Um, and of course, then you've got uh, decades of civil war and economic collapse afterwards. But you know, that's, that's another story. Hey ho, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it's not going to be repeated. Right. So, so because I, you know, I'm reading Peter Heather's book on the fall of Rome, and he says actually Britain was almost sort of grounds. Britain's the ultimate example of where, where Romanness was almost completely extinguished, you know, in terms of language and religion and and architecture and everything else. So, so it sounds to me like that's not a product of these um, violent barbarian Anglo-Saxons, Jutes and everything coming across. Um, it's actually just because it never really took hold in the first place. So, so it was always, a f Romanness was always fragile in Britain. Exactly. I think it's that very fragileness that, that is the issue, because when you look at 5th, 6th century uh, Britain, you don't get any aspects of Roman culture really surviving. Arguably, I mean, in little pockets of Christianity surviving and Latin being the language of the church. But beyond that, um, with regards to you know, Roman religion, Roman settlement types, uh, the Roman language, Roman legal system, it all goes. And I think the issue there is that the Britons have effectively rejected. I mean, the only people who are wholeheartedly embracing Roman culture in the fourth and fifth centuries uh, are, are the wealthy elite. And once the economy breaks down, um, they're either dead or they've changed allegiances or they've gone somewhere else. The bulk of the British society has never really been brought on board the, the Romans of programme. And so by the time the first Saxons settle in Britain, there is no Roman culture surviving. So it's not a case of these Germanic peoples coming into Britain and in the very sort of Arthurian tradition, you're you know, a mythical figure defending Roman culture against these barbarians. The Saxons arrive, Roman culture is already dead in Britain. It's been dead for decades. So neither the Britons nor the Saxons are sort of in inheriting or, or continuing a Roman tradition. It's only much, much later in the 6th and 7th centuries when you've got the Catholic Church 
bringing Christianity back into Britain? Do you see a revival of Roman ideas and you see the first sort of uh, Saxon monarchs and kingdoms and they start using Roman text on their coins? But that is Roman ideas and Roman culture being brought back. When they arrived, it, it was completely dead. That's absolutely fascinating. And what sites are you working on at the moment that, that, are, that are really um, shining a light on this? Well, as I say, we've been digging a whole series for the last sort of 10 years or so. We've, we've been looking at, at Bournemouth University. We've been doing a, a number of excavations around Dorset because you've got here the, the Duratriges tribe, uh, which were settled before the Romans arrive. And what we've been trying to do is, is trying to understand what happens when the Roman state, when the Roman army has moved through. Because the idea, you know, it's always been felt that you've got a town like Dorchester being developed. Surely the natives were shaved and washed and put into togas, almost like a sort of a, a Roman reservation, and they became Romanized. And of course, that, that's not the picture at all. So we're taking a whole series of native British sites in and around the Dorchester area and investigating them and seeing what happens in the first, second, third, fourth centuries. How do they develop? And we're finding more and more that native burial patterns continue uninterrupted, native building styles continue. And yes, you do find coins and pottery, but society is never being won over by the Roman cause. So blinded though we are by big masonry structures and mosaics, it's the native sites, timber buildings, which of course don't survive uh, prominently today, but there's many more of, of those. And it's really that story that we're, we're tracing and, and trying to give a, a more nuanced picture of what's happening in Britain as part of the Roman Empire. Because as I said, it, it's not a great success for Rome. Yes, it makes money out of this, this territory, but it never really wins the people over. And it's trying to understand why and how that happens uh, and looking at the archaeological evidence to, to try and elucidate that. I, I, this is, I mean, we can't answer this, but what, why do you think, is it just time? Is it just... It's just you just need generations to make that process happen. Why do we think the people of Southern Gaul uh, became more Romanized if if they did? Well, the, I, I guess the difficulty when we look at someone like Gaul is that that, that Gaul or modern day France it, it's conquered extremely quickly. You've got Julius Caesar marching his soldiers into there, and in a series you know over a decade. We are seeing in the 50s BC of a population base probably about three million living in central France. A million are killed. Men, women and children are slaughtered by by the soldiers they come in. A million are probably enslaved and you've got a third of the population left and the whole political system is in tatters. And at a very basic level, from that point onwards, it's relatively easy to impose Roman control and build towns. And over time, you know, generations later, when, when the population base has increased, Gaul becomes an extremely successful and Romanized part of the empire. In fact, it embraces Roman culture, put arguably more successfully than any other Western provinces. Now, in Britain, you've never got that kind of population cull. You haven't got that kind of, of, of disruption or dislocation. Uh, Rome is very keen to sort of, I mean, on the one hand, it's never meeting massed armies to, to fight against but it, it's very keen to delegate authority it, it's the cheaper option it's more I argue from their point of view cost effective but because population isn't disrupted significantly I think it retains its culture patterns and identity right the way through the Roman conquest I mean you could argue after you know World War II East, Eastern Germany becomes a, a probably one of the most prominent and successful communist states but it's gone through significant disruption. Population um, you know, has been scattered. Um, 
And so the, the new systems embed themselves quite successfully and quickly. I think the same thing's true in Gaul and France, that there's so much disruption, there's so much slaughter on an industrial scale that afterwards the survivors, it, there's no resistance to Rome whatsoever. Whoever's left embraces it and generations down the line, it's extremely successful. So I think on a very basic level, Rome needed to kill more people in Britain to embed Roman culture more successfully. And thankfully, they didn't do that. But because of that, you've got native patterns surviving for far, far longer than they do in France. Well, that's an amazing, amazing thought. I did not know about those those Gallic figures. That's absolutely astonishing. It, it's quite shocking, really. I mean, Julius Caesar is often put up as a, you know, one of the greatest Romans. But when you look at it in those sort of terms, it's, it's you know, the, the kind of extermination, the kind of um, sort of uh, social dislocation that he enacted upon Gaul is, is just, just shocking. Amazing. Well, um, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Miles Russell. How can people find out about what you're doing and, and keep up with you? Uh, well, as I said, the, the Bournemouth University website, we've got lots of uh, reports on our, um, our excavations going on. If you look at Juratriga's dig on Twitter, you'll find out our, our reports. And Unroman Britain, um, where myself and Stuart Laycock looking at the unroman nature of the province, is uh, published now, now with History Press. Brilliant. Unroman Britain, everyone, go and, go and check it out. Thank That's you very right. much for coming <laughs> on the podcast. Thank you. Our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith. In you. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go on to iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps and basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.